Welcome, everybody, to Ramdas here and now. I'm Raghu Marcus. And uh, before we get into uh, a little introduction to this talk from Ramdas that we're featuring on the podcast today, I want to mention that uh, we have a, a, a very wonderful offering, especially in light of the times that we are in these days. And uh, from uh, it emanates from these retreats that we've been having in the last few years here in Ojai, California. We have retreats, we have been having retreats in Maui a couple of times a year with Ramdas and Krishna Das. The last one happened just before Ramdas passed in December of last year. This one is titled Compassion and Practice in Action, and it's building the groundwork for a life of service, freedom, and love. And as I said, it emanates from these retreats, and we put uh, together a, uh, a, a number of different uh, um, sessions from these retreats, all revolving around uh, one of the retreats, all these retreats have uh, different themes where we play Ramdas media and then we have one of the teachers that we bring along to uh, elucidate these teachings uh, through their own prisms. And uh, this particular one was with Dale Borglum, Ramdev, who was with us back in the day with Neem Karoli Baba and has a wonderful uh, center up in uh, uh, Marin County, Living Dying Institute, which you can check out, and uh, will be in the show notes here, so you can connect up uh, with him. Uh, and alongside of that, we had, uh, so obviously around compassion and around practice, because uh, that's something that we talk about on a day-to-day -day basis whenever we do any of these offerings. Uh, practice is necessary for us to be able to uh, move, as Ramdas says, from our heads to our hearts. And so we have mantra practice. We have an opening uh, kirtan practice featuring our good friend Trevor Hall, Rampriya Das. And that's a first uh, for anybody to hear him doing these wonderful chants, and uh, and I do something with Trevor around the nature of the goddess, and uh, and then Mirabai Star and Saraswati, uh, uh, and I did something around the cessation of the turnings of the mind, and I did something around Ramayana with Duncan Trussell and Benji Wertheimer. Nina Rao is there with uh, Saraswati in a breath and mantra uh, workshop, so it's just chock full of uh, wonderful, wonderful wisdom, of course, emanating from Ramdas and then featuring uh, Ramdev Dale, who uh, does uh, an extraordinary uh, job around uh, describing what compassion is, talking about us versus them, b building groundwork for compassionate relationships, uh, and creating a groundwork for compassion in action service. Yeah, so uh, I, uh, it's it's a free stream, everybody. I think it's going to be up uh, for for quite a while. We're here. Where are we? At the beginning of May, uh, 
certainly into the beginning of June. So take advantage of it. But everything we do, streaming-wise, of course, is free. And uh, we do ask for everyone's help in supporting uh, the foundation so that we can continue to do these offerings. So I just wanted to highlight uh, the... uh, this uh, bundle, which you just need to go to uh, ramdas.org slash compassion. And I think it'll be uh, right obviously up there on the top banner and just click on it and you can begin to stream now. Okay. I mean, this is really, you know, it's tough for us these days because uh, we had to cancel the... uh, the Ojai retreat that we had planned uh, for this month uh, would have been happening a little later in this month. And so we brought it forward and did it as a virtual retreat a couple of weeks ago, which is also available um, through ramdas.org. And uh, now we're hoping to do the one we had planned in Maui in early May that now is at the end of August and We are living in rabid uncertainty, so we're not sure what's going to happen, but stay tuned for those of you who had planned to come. We're still hoping to do it, uh, but we as everyone, uh, uh, all of us are are just looking at it day to day. We are being here now, aren't we? So uh, right on to the uh, talk that we're featuring uh, uh, on this podcast it's from a, a really wonderful retreat that uh, Ramdas uh, did in 1989 called the Listening Heart Retreat. And we picked uh, a part of the session that uh, was all around uh, different questions that people had. And they were around trust. They were around doubt, faith, letting go. Um, they were all, I mean, and of course, Ramdas treats every question uh, so it, with such honoring, it's just amazing that he, he's done that his whole life. There isn't a question that he dismisses ever. Uh, so what fascinated me, uh, particularly the, the first uh, question was around, uh, basically being our somebody. We all are a somebody. And Ramdas went on to talk about the way that he characterized this whole question of a somebody uh, just, it blew my mind because I think as many of you know, uh, we did this movie Becoming Nobody, which is out there, was in theaters last fall and all the way into the beginning of the year before theaters were no longer functioning in that manner, uh, showing films. Now they're showing them online, actually. It's pretty amazing. Um, And so... It was it that movie. The core is from somebody to nobody, and this is in 1989 that he came up. He he just basically just described the whole uh, core of the film, and uh, Jamie, the director, Jamie Cato, and I, uh, we just never came upon this particular uh, question in this particular uh, talk. A little bit of a knee and a haste. Uh, a needle in a haystack of trying to find it, but it just appeared now, and I'm I'm like, wow, this is just 
amazing, amazing. Um, and you, so, and, but the his his uh, his response to this question is all around uh, how vulnerable we feel when we start to uh, become quote unquote nobody, meaning we stop being so self-referential, so involved in our little um, self-interest. And once we do that, and it can be through practice or it could be through any kind of experience that suddenly lands us in a place where we are not so self-concerned. And, and, you know, and, and this is the core of what the question was. Suddenly there's a fear. I don't feel safe not having that solidity of somebodyness. It dissolved. And um, Ramdas talked about how he found in one point in his life that not having to be somebody was not a weakness, but a sign of strength. Um, and uh, so the idea is if, if one can uh, walk up, if you imagine walking up to somebody without any kind of self-referential point, meaning no solid identity role, nothing, and just allow their mind, the, the other person's mind, to define your reality without getting caught in it. Uh, uh, that's an extraordinary experience, and I'm sure many of us have had this at some point in their lives when you are in a trusting place and you're willing to let go you know it's like when we have these retreats in in Maui or in Ojai uh, people walk in and they leave their uh, they leave that identity that role at the doorway and suddenly there's just that commonality of heart we are here together that is who we are so that self-definition that we might have come there with, it just dissolves. And, and suddenly, it's a completely other kind of experience. Um, yeah, so I, uh, as I said, I was really, wow. Bob, he just delved completely into this, and then we reproduced this uh, in a movie. You know, how many years later? 89, 99, two, <laughs> Jesus. You know, almost uh, you know, twenty-five odd years later, whatever. Pretty amazing. Um, and there's some great stuff here around uh, effort too, which is you know a very problematic uh, subject. Of course, it's one of the eightfold paths: right effort from Buddha. Um, and and there was a beautiful question around that. And uh, I love this particular thing that he refers to uh, in terms of right effort. It has to do with timing and balance to get to right effort, like falling off a, a leg, uh, a leg, falling off a log. Is that you know what's the effort? What is the moment at, of of which you know you're in a certain kind of balance, right? Timing when you let go and you just flow, and that that was the the image that uh, he he talked about. Um, what else? So there's a great, uh, this is a, a wonderful aphorism from, or quote from the Tao Te Ching, uh, the truth waits for eyes, unclouded by longing, right? And again, reminds me of uh, 
a friend of mine was driving Joseph Goldstein. I have mentioned this um, before on my my other podcast, uh, Mind Rolling Podcast, which you can find on Be Here Now Network, a little plug there. Um, and he was taking Joseph Goldstein around, who was uh, at one of the retreats we had a couple of years ago in Maui, and a young man, and he said, you know, I've been on the path not a long time, given my age. What's your best suggestion, Joseph, if you were going to give me one prompt to tread that path, what would it be? And Joseph looked at him and said two words, stop clinging. Right? The truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. That's so great. Oh. <laughs> you know, when I first met Ram Dass, one of the great things for me, and I've said this before as well, was the, it's just that honesty, you know? And he was so honest with everything, and then I thought, wow, okay, I'm okay. All of these kind of dark thoughts, all of these horrific motivations of self-interest, you know, I'm okay, just human. Uh, you know, and Ramdas talked here about how we make decisions not in harmony with the way of things, how quickly we acknowledge these errors and motivations is a big deal. And uh, so the, here's the line that freed me way back then. I've learned I am a complete phony anyway, so I honor that and just get on with it. So that's, that's his whole thing about having a sense of humor about one's predicament. You know, you see that the things that, that the actions we take that are not in harmony with the thing, with the way of things, how quickly do we realize that? And, and then, you know, Ram Dass's vernacular is just, okay, well, I'm a complete idiot anyhow, so might as well just get on with it, right? Don't take it so self-seriously. That's uh, one of his that's such core, core teachings, really. Uh, there's some good stuff around uh, doubt and faith. Um, and I had an experience uh, with Neem Karoli Baba, with Maharaji in India. Uh, I was sitting near him, or you know, or near where he sat uh, on this uh, tucket bench thing bed um and a bunch of westerners sitting around and then this new guy came along young man well we were all young then and um he was kind of confused as to why he was there and you know what his motivations were we had talked to him before and and so he looked really kind of off you know confused and maharaji said well what uh what's wrong with him what's going on with him so I was going to uh, represent <laughs> this guy's uh, issues and said, well, he's not sure why he came here, and um, he's a little bit confused, Maharaji. And Maharaji turned, pointed his finger at me, and in English, which he only he would speak words of, you know, supposedly he didn't speak English, and he looked at me, and in English he went, doubt <laughs> okay i was completely destroyed for a week on that one and questioning my faith and questioning everything 
and and how wonderful that uh, the situation of me thinking I was going to help this guy out who had, I thought, doubt. And then he turned it right into me to just clean up that part of uh, my mind in that moment, you know. And, uh, yeah, faith is not based on experience, but it lies behind the experience. This is something else that he talked about. And uh, my favorite story is in this, uh, in this Q&A that Ram Dass did. And it's the you never know story or who knows, you know. Like the farmer, uh, a horse escapes and the neighbor comes by and said, oh, oh, that's terrible. And, he, and the farmer goes, well, who knows, you know. And then the horse comes back with a, another horse that he made friends with. And the, farmer, uh, the neighbor goes, well, that's tremendous. Isn't that great? And, oh, well, who knows? And then the son gets on the horse the the wild horse and goes off and the horse uh, dumps him in and he breaks his leg and again the neighbor said oh god that's terrible and, well who knows and then next thing you know the there's a war and the uh, the armed forces are coming to conscript young men and they can't because he broke his leg you know who knows you never know I mean I mean it's kind of been a, a bit of a mantra. Uh, well, I think it's a mantra for all of us lately, right? We have no idea. And uh, just trying to stay in the moment is uh, is one of the best uh, practices that we can do. And that takes a little bit of other effort, you know, more falling off the uh, the log kind of effort, right? Oh, boy. And I guess I have to... Uh, also admit that just listening to this, I had a close friend call me just as I had finished listening, and I just miss Ramdas. That's all I can say. I just heard him at the end, just laughing the way he used to laugh. And uh, yeah, I guess as she said, just treasure those moments that I'm able to connect with him that way anyhow i don't want to get maudlin here uh this is a great talk again from 89 it's from the listening heart series and uh, please do enjoy and this is ramdas here and now on the be here now network go to be here now network.com and we have a whole wonderful uh, coterie of fantastic teachers, thought leaders, podcasters. And so do take advantage. And we will see you next week. Namaste. My lack of trust in how to just be and how to let go of constantly reaching out to touch people, to give to people, are you there? Because if they respond warmly, I am here. And my fear, if I don't 
reach out. I won't be here. That's very interesting. Um, the um, on the journey of becoming somebody, having a name, an identity, and a place, we feared the cracks in that where we weren't somebody. We feared the nobodiness. And then when we turn around and start to become nobody, all of our old fears of not being something come up again. I watched myself um, um, shift my inner experiences about myself from feeling like I had a strong persona that was outward and inward, where I was sitting in my somebodyness all the time. And I watched it start to dissolve. And my confusion, because I hadn't dealt with the world without that. And I remember now, as I look back, the flickery period during which it was, I felt very vulnerable in my nobodiness, in nothing, and not knowing where I was or who I was or what I was, that I didn't feel safe in that structure any longer. And... I noticed that when I, like some, I'd be giving an interview for a newspaper or magazine, and somebody would say, do you have a message for our readers? And I'd listen, and I'd say, no, I don't. <laughs> and uh, they weren't used to that, because everybody has a message. I mean, I could talk till you can see, I can talk indefinitely and I've got, but in terms of me, I don't have a message in the sense, that's a somebody thing that is just not what I, it's about any longer. And as people said, like, who are you? Well, they call it and they say, what's been happening? Now, there's so many levels. Which one do they want? Well, they say, where do you live? I say, on Earth. They say, that's not what I mean. Or who are you? I think I didn't even notice the way it was dissolving that kind of solidity of somebodyness was dissolving, except the way people kept, when people acted in a way that expected me to be solid and I wasn't. And then I began to get a sense of this thing happening. And at first I felt easy because I had come out of a value where to be chameleon-like, you know, where you're changing your colors to every situation is somehow a sign of weakness. And I had to flip it around where I started to experience that as a sign of strength, that I didn't have to be somebody. I could be open to that more and more. I had no idea who I am, what I'm doing here, 
where I'm going. I can give you models, metaphors. You know, I can do that very, very charmingly and very well. And then I can go in and out of them. But they're all ones to loosen the ones you've got. To, so we will all end up together with none of them. It's the same thing about the thorn. And I think that the confusion is feeling that you have to come into a situation with a somebodyness that you then have to get everybody to reassure you that's it in order to feel safe in the situation. And I find now more and more I can walk into a situation, walk up to somebody and have no idea who I am or what I'm doing there and allow their minds to define my reality without getting caught in it see their mind define the reality if that reality is one that's destructive it will won't feel harmonious and i i trust it had to do with trust in the inner connection to truth and i think that that transformation is a very flickery process very flickery process i think you just let yourself in it's like letting yourself into a very hot bath you go in by little degrees of playing with the idea that you just don't know Stephen Levine talks about don't knowness. I think he got it from Sun Sin, Sun Sung, what's his name? Sung Sin, the Zen master, who just said, practice, don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Now, to go from that world of social existence where you're constantly looking in other people's eyes to say, am I existing? Am I good enough? Am I what you want? Am I all right? Am I here? See, like at this moment, there's the wind and the trees. And at that moment, when I heard the wind and the trees, I disappeared and there was just the wind and the trees. And then a moment later, this situation brought back me talking to you. And I realized that for years, I could never do that. I couldn't just allow the wind and the trees to exist because I was afraid of the loss of continuity. I was afraid of allowing the moment to be just what it was for fear I wouldn't be appropriate to the situation. There are stages of this process of transformation. There is a stage where you feel something in you that is behind your social facade and your social relationships to people. You feel a, a, a somebodyness, which we call soul. It's like you feel an, an entity. Then as you get deeper into the, into the transformative work, that thing starts to dissolve. That's what anatta is about. There's no self, there's no one. Then you just see that there are just processes going on. There's nobody there. There's just these processes going on. And then the question is, how do you incorporate that understanding into existence? How do you live with no continuity? The continuity is the result of karma. It's the result that who you were started an inertial process that leads to you to be this person. But as your awareness is less attached to that, you're just aware of processes. Just as I'm aware of my body aging and decaying, I'm aware of my awareness getting lighter and less attached to my forms. 
I'm aware of personality processes, old ones running off. I'm aware that when somebody comes up to me that is a strong symbol of this or uh, somebody that awakens this desire, the desire will arise or the reaction will awaken. But I can see it now almost in slow motion as just processes going on. And all I end up being is just these processes. All the form of me ends up being is just these processes. And behind it all, they're just as... You see, not somebody being aware, there's just awareness, which is even subtler. See, there's nobody, there's nobody here. There isn't anybody here. And it's so interesting because we so little can handle even imagining there's nobody in there. We keep projecting our own solidity into everybody else. So it's very hard for me to convey to you the kind of nothingness that's going on in here. And say to you that you just keep delicately approaching it and just playing with watching the way in which you need that reassurance and watching that need and seeing that need is just a phenomenon that exists in the universe lawfully existing and keep quieting the mind and deepening the connection to just that part of you that just is with it all just the spacious awareness it's called spacious awareness it's the sky it's just the sky I was just trying to convey that that delicate transformative period, which is confusing and frightening and all of it. Questions? Uh, I have been uh, uh, pondering lately my uh, darker sides, what I feel like my darker sides. And I think I have been putting all that uh, more or less perhaps unconsciously, into the background. have been perhaps playing sort of hide-and-seek with myself. Uh, and uh, so my question is, how can I uh, attain the, the stance where I know how to stop that hide-and-seek process and really venture on confronting myself and seeing all those uh, darker sides. I have been, uh, I have had a period where I, I have noticed that I'm changing and, and uh, people respond to that and I'm happy and that feeds my ego very strongly. So that makes the temptation to put all the rest into the background, uh, so much the stronger. But uh, now, there I am. How, how shall I become conscious, more conscious of this seek and hide playing with myself and so see how I can confront these things uh, head on, face to face, and be able to Forgive myself for them. Take them lightly. And to me it sounds very, very, very paradoxical to love, simply to see those things and really love them or at least 
accept, accept them completely. There are words in the way in which you presented that question, which was very beautifully presented. There are ways that you presented it that, that in which red flags went up in my consciousness. Words like confront and words like forgive. Um, what I have found is that as I have... Uh, found and cultivated a, a part of my being that is behind the good and the evil, behind the dark and the light, behind personality, behind even thought, that as I've cultivated that, which has a quality of, um, of spaciousness, of presence, of uh, softness, of just isness, um, and as I have been less ego involved in dark and light, the dark and the light come up and they make themselves more available to me because I am invested less in them. That the intensity of the investment in an image of oneself that leads one to push away things that are not harmonious with the way which one wants in which one would like to see oneself. What I have noticed is that as I, instead of dealing with them directly, as I've gone in a very oblique fashion to merely cultivate these other parts of my being, that I have divested these, the incredible lock-in of emotionality to these dark identities and the light identities, and then they just start to swirl in front of me and just seem like nature and its processes. Rather, and in the same way as I needn't forgive nature for a rainstorm because it is part of the way of things, so I don't end up forgiving nature, which is my own dark and lights and dramas and unfolding of stuff. I just come to allow it or acknowledge it and it loses its power. I, I'm really interested in how you divest something of the power as opposed to deal with it. Because dealing with it invests that plane of reality with a solidity and the capacity to cultivate another plane of consciousness it's the way in which um, the woman was who was dealing with bereavement just now said when i go into this other place it's all perfectly clear and light and all that stuff you're stuck in seems kind of irrelevant and then you come back into it and it's all heavy and you seem like you're climbing a mountain and the art, as I understand it, is to cultivate these other planes of consciousness. And then as you do it, you just, the stuff keeps coming up and you keep running it through. You no longer have to push it away because it falls into perspective. It's as if you've just shifted your focus. Like when I am with somebody and I am caught in our relationship, 
then what you did to me and what I did to you, and you're not really feeling friendly and I'm concerned and we cut caught in these structures. When we come up for air and we look at each other, we look and we see all this is the stuff of life between us. And at that moment, all that stuff just seems so malleable and so workable and so easily let goable and so changeable because our ego isn't invested in that plane of reality where that's all real. It's like uh, Thaddeus Golas, who wrote a book called The Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment. One of his lines was, what am I doing in this place where this is real? How did I get stuck here? What am I doing here? How bizarre. And I think that, um, so for example, when I feel like, um, I'm in my personality structures in the darks and the lights and all, even though I'm in a culture that treats that with such reverence as if it's all so solidly real, I'm much more inclined to chant the Hanuman Chalisa and just sing the Hanuman and just go off in another angle, follow my breath or sing or talk to Maharaji and just, I love you or think about Hanuman or the Ramayana or do my devotional practices or my service and just and people say well you're pushing it away that sometimes when you're in it and you try to work it out you just keep investing it and it's a bottomless well of stuff because as long as you stay in the world of good and evil it keeps feeding upon itself and the only way i understand is to come to the place that exists behind dark and a light in which then as your investment is less, the stuff keeps coming up and it just seems to be appreciated, understood why it is the way it is and it starts to lose its power. And that I think is the only strategy I can suggest, right? Because I think the words like confront and forgive are all at that plane where that's real. Question. How much effort should we put into making changes in our lives or should we let go and trust in the natural flow of life? The answer is really a delicate blend of both of them. It's what the meaning of the term right effort is. Misunderstood right effort is a driven I've got to change in which you get trapped in trying as that little story I read was. And yet no effort is not harmonious with the yearning for freedom and the feeling of uh, the desire to do the work on oneself. So one is cultivating and moving in and out at first sequentially and then hopefully more and more simultaneously. That statement, the wise person does nothing and nothing is left undone. It's that learning how to be between effort and no effort that is such a delicate art form in which there, is things, there are things being done. There is effort made to change. And yet you're not standing in there trying it. It just is what it's. Like, um, I'm with somebody and I feel myself get caught in some habits of interaction that are stuffy, right? It's a nice way of saying stuffy. They're real. I'm aware of that. 
Now, under certain conditions, I'd say to the person, let's work this out. Let's get behind it. If the timing is wrong when I do that, we are so invested in those patterns that even as we try to work it out, we just keep substituting other patterns and keep working. There is another timing where it is so ripe that we can just recognizing the cottonness, we start to let go because we're both ready to let go. Right effort has to do with timing and hearing as well and feeling when, when that effort is just absolutely appropriate and you're not gonna get caught in making the effort, it's just what needs to happen. See if I can give another example. I was down in, uh, I had been on a long tour, lecture tour, and I was very tired. And I was in New Mexico and I was in a uh, sauna with some lovely friends, um, a Tibetan nun and others. And we were all hanging around in this sauna. I just like the image of a Tibetan nun in a sauna bath. <laughs> we were all sitting in this sauna and a telegram was delivered to me. And the telegram said, we are holding a place for you for the Rohatsu Dai Sashin, which starts on December 19th. This was December 17th. Now the Rohatsu Dai Sashin is the sitting in that sect of Buddhism, of Zen Buddhism, that is the fiercest one of the year. And uh, the place they were holding the place for me was at a mountain in outside of Los Angeles, which was about a thousand miles away. Here I was relaxing in this hot tub. It was all so sweet. And here they were, these cold, tight Zen Buddhists, a thousand miles away, holding a space for me where they beat you with sticks. <laughs> if you go, they come over and they bow and you bow and then they beat you and then you thank them for beating you. It's, it's really, it's total sadomasochism. I mean, it's, there's no excuse for it at all. And I read the telegram and I thought, I could have read the telegram to everybody in the group. We would have all laughed at it. And then it would have gotten soggy from the sauna. And that would have been the end of it. But I read it and I felt my way into this moment, the sauna, the nun, the telegram, Mount Baldy, the airplane, the rushing, the... Uh, and the opportunity to have, I don't remember, nine or 11 days of such incredible discipline and rigor. And I found in me this incredible yearning for that experience. And I said to everybody, excuse me, I've just been called away. And I got up and I washed and I packed and I drove to the airport and I took an airplane and I went to Los Angeles and I got a car and I went up to this mountain and I arrived just in time and I walked in. And by then my ego was so proud of myself for doing all this <laughs> that I thought when I arrive, I'll walk in. And, and I expected people to say, oh, Ram Dass, you've come, how wonderful. And, there was a shaven fellow with a black robe and he met me and yes, 
I said, my name's Ram Das. Das, you're in the upper bunk in, in bungalow six uh, on the far side. Uh, here are your clothes. Please be in the Zendo in six minutes. I thought, holy shit, man. I mean, I, I just, <laughs> I mean, you could have given me a little something for all this, you know, I'm going back to the hot tub. <laughs> and uh, I went into it and it was hard. It was really hard, especially the first couple of days because you got to keep going in to the, to the Roshi and he, his technique is sort of, ah, uh, they give you a koan, you see. My koan was, um, how do you know your Buddha nature through the, through the sound of a pine tree? And I would come in and you bow and scrape and do all this. Ah, doctor. How you know your Buddha nature through sound of pine tree? So you spend all your time sitting. You got to sit like this with your fingers against your belly button and neck down. And sit like this. See, and if you go like this, they come over and beat you. See, you got to sit like this. And then there's these running things where you just can look at the feet of the guy in front of you and run, you know, and then you sit back like this. And it's really weird. And so then you go in and you report and you, you've been practicing what you're going to say to him, you know. So you say something like, you know, like listening. Ah, doctor, I am so disappointed. I held so much promise for you. Then he rings the bell and you're thrown out. And you know, oh, my God. You know, and this went on for five days. I mean, five days and four times a day you got to do this. And he was just cutting me to shreds. Finally, on the fifth day, I was running a fever and I had chills and I got so disgusted with the whole thing. I walked up to the house to the, for the, I had a run. You got to run to report in. I ran up and I looked at a bush and it was burning and I thought, aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> And I walked and he says, how you, and I didn't give a shit. I just didn't care. You know, I didn't give a damn how the Buddha, you knew your Buddha nature. I just didn't care. And I said, he got all finished with his routine. I said, good morning, Roshi. <laughs> like, let's cut this shit. Good morning. Ah, now you becoming beginning student of Zen. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy but it was interesting that moment in the sauna where i was ready to the pleasure was beautiful and lovely but that yearning for something was so strong that i would put myself in that situation knowing i was going into that and you'd say well was it effort it was and it wasn't it was the obvious it was like is falling off a log effort. Well, it isn't when it's the, you know, when your balance is right. And it all has to do with timing and balance, the way I can hear it, to get that quality of right effort.
question. Um, I, I find tremendous difficulty in making decisions quite often. Well, how do I know if it's my head talking or my intuition or heart? And how does synchronicity versus uh, endeavor come into that? If you were a completely enlightened being, every action would come out of the fullness of a, a grokking or a oneness with everything in the universe. As Kalu said, once you are nobody, you are everybody or everything or everywhere. It would come out of the fullness and there could be no errors because it would always be in harmony with the deepest wisdom of the Tao of the way. But we take birth as humans because we have karma, which is our clingings of mind. And as the Tao says, the truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. So that we don't hear the truth fully, we only hear the projections of our own desires. So that again and again, we make decisions that end up not being in the deepest harmony with the way of things. And the art of growth has to do with how quickly you admit error. Not that you don't make, it's not mistakes, but make decisions that are not arising out of the fullness of the wisdom of things because you can't hear them clearly. But what we do is we constantly make decisions from where we're sitting then that decision leads to a new moment. And then in the new moment, you listen again. And often you realize that the new moment suggests that that previous decision just led you into a new moment in which there is another decision that isn't gonna be consistent with the last one. And to the extent that you define yourself as somebody, it is very hard to be inconsistent to the extent that you keep coming back into the existential situation with the trust that if I keep listening to the moment and keep being true to what I'm hearing, while people may be upset with me because I am not consistent, I will stay as close to the truth as I hear it. And that's what I can offer myself and into the universe. So I would say that we don't know from moment to moment what level we're saying it at because the ego is so exquisite at masking and imitating the deeper voices of our truth. It'll constantly saying, I am the voice of truth. Jump off this bridge. And you have to keep listening as deeply as you can and then when the situation requires it, you appear to be making a decision. And remember what we've said about decisions, which I'm not gonna repeat now, but that's a hype anyway. And then you listen again, and you listen again, and you listen again. I've, I mean, I'm a master at this game. I've published articles like, uh, I've published a whole ch chapter of an article called Egg on My Beard, which was a description of how I got caught in a whole spiritual scene for a couple of years. Took hundreds and hundreds of people with me and got caught in the projections of my own desires for power and for enlightenment. And then I had to admit that I got caught in something that wasn't 
clear. And as I awoke, the minute I realized it wasn't clear, then I had to extricate myself from it in a way that kept my heart open. And then I did it. And then I had to publicly admit that I had done that. Of course, it's embarrassing not to be always infinitely wise. But I feel that what we can offer each other is our truth of the process of growing. And that means we fall on our face again and again. As Sri Aurobindo says, you get up, you take a step, you fall on your face. You get up, you look sheepishly at God, you brush yourself off. You take another step, you fall on your face. You get up, you look sheepishly at God, brush yourself <laughs> off. Take another, And that's the journey of, of awakening. If you were awakened already, you wouldn't do that. So my suggestion is you relax and don't expect that you will always make the wisest decisions and just realize that sometimes you make a decision and it wasn't the right one and then you change it. Uh, what do you mean? by Well, you're listening as well as you can to the universe and often, but you will see that when things start to happen a certain way, your mind will focus on in that because you're looking for patterns which we call synchronicity. And uh, often you will just get caught in your desire to find a pattern that will give you an external validation for what you're doing. And you just use the universe again to do it to yourself. So just be, stay with your truth from moment to moment and get the clues wherever you can. You know, I mean, I'll open the I Ching and read something when I have a question. And if it doesn't feel good, I say, well, that was interesting, and I close it. <laughs> and if it feels like what I wanted to do anyway, I say, oh, wow, synchronicity, and I do it. So I've learned that I'm a complete phony anyway, so I might as well just honor it and get on with it. <laughs> Questions? This group is also uh, about doubt, and this question is about doubt. Um, when I feel uh, God's presence in my heart, there's love and there's meaning and purpose. And there are times when that fades and things start to be dry. And the real killer is that the meaning goes. And uh, life really seems to be meaningless at times. And I don't really know how to, what to do in that situation. This question really, uh, it's interesting. It does concern um, doubt and the other side of it, faith, as opposed to belief. After a series of such experiences, where you open and close. You, it's like the other day I was walking uh, at my home in California and I looked over at a fence and there were these exquisite, uh, the whole fence, wire fence was covered with these beautiful blue flowers. And I was in ecstasy. They were radiantly bright and blue. And, um, I didn't have my glasses on. I didn't know what kind of flowers they were, but I, they were just absolutely beautiful. And I was just in delight. And I went to my neighbor with, uh, on whose estate I live. And I said, there are just these absolutely beautiful blue flowers uh, out. 
and uh, we will continue to talk. And then later in the afternoon, later, much later in the day, that was the morning. And later in the afternoon, I said, uh, we started to go outside for something else. I said, oh, let me show you these blue flowers. And I came up and there weren't any blue flowers. Because they were morning glories. And those of you that know about morning glories know that they're only glorious in the morning. <laughs> and at first I felt confused and angry and upset and embarrassed and everything. I said, I could have sworn there were blue flowers here. And then he said, you mean the morning glories. And then the word morning glory went in and I thought, ah, that's what morning glory means. Ah, what do you know? And I relaxed. Faith is understanding that they're morning glories. Faith is understanding that as long as there are any clingings in you at all, that you are going to lose the spiritual material aspects of spiritual experience, which is understanding, bliss, rapture, feeling of intimacy, anything that is an experience connected with spirituality is going to come and go. And that's the issue of the Nietzsche, that everything's changing all the time, and that it's going to keep coming and going. To the extent that you have based your faith on experience, this is a really far out edge, you are bound to have a hard road because you're going to constantly be flickering and you're going to be afraid of the shifts of your experience. The minute you recognize that faith concerns something that lies behind experience, that is just being, not the experience of being, but just being, that when the, it turns dull and it all seems empty and there's nobody around, it's much more of awesome. And then it opens up and it's awesome. And you don't demand of yourself that you always be wise and you always be clear and you always feel like you're connected to God. That you realize that these, all these experiences are just the way the mind is playing in the universe of form. And that when you're feeling that intimacy and that warmth and that devotional delicious quality if you will go in deeper to find the place behind all that stuff then you will find that when you're in the depressed cut off empty thing you can sit with that and find the place back in behind that to rest not it's not an experience of negative or positive it's just and then pretty soon the mm and the mm are the same mm. And then the ah and the uh are just little things. They're the morning glories opening and closing. And behind it all, and remember the story of the man, the farmer? And one day he 
his horse ran away. And his neighbor said to him, oh, that's too bad. And the farmer said, who knows? And the next day, the horse came back and it had attracted a wild horse. So now he had two horses. And the neighbor came and said, how wonderful. And the farmer said, who knows? And the next day, his young son decided to ride the wild horse. And he was riding the wild horse and he fell off and he broke his leg. And the neighbor came and said, that's too bad. And he said, who knows? And at the time there was a war and the army came through conscripting young men, but they didn't take his son because he had a broken leg. <laughs> and the neighbor said, how fortunate. And he said, who knows? <laughs> that's the place, the who knows. Who knows? And usually when you have gotten attached to the spiritual material experiences of bliss and of intimacy and of aliveness of spirit, when it turns dead and cold and nothing, you get so freak and so reactive and feeling like you've lost, fell out of grace, that you're then dealing with all your reactions to it not with the thing itself, just with the reactions to it. With, oh, I wasn't worthy, I didn't deserve it. Oh, see, God figured me out, I'm a fraud, you know, mea culpa. The other one, and now, because I've gone in and out of it so many times, now my faith is strong. Not my faith that I will feel the experience of being close to God, but just the faith of that it is, right? It's a good one. Questions? Um, about this time last year, I think it was, I had what I thought was a really important insight, and it probably was, which was that I'd spent a lot of time thinking that my natural habitat was unhappiness, that that was the natural color of things. So I decided to go for happiness, and I spent time kind of recognizing happiness and embracing it and so on. Um, but thinking about desire systems, it occurred to me that perhaps the desire for happiness is something that I have to let go as well. So, some practical advice, please. I had an interesting time with that because there is a, a in, in Buddhism, one of the things is may all beings be happy. And in the um, metta meditation we were doing, it's may we be enabled to carry out our lives in peace and happiness. And as long as I kept happiness as the polar opposite of sadness, it was like keeping love as the polar opposite of hate. And then it turns out there's a semantic issue of which level you're using the word at. And to the extent that happiness means being in harmony with what is, meaning being peacefully in relationship to everything that is. Finally, I realized that my happiness isn't based on the situation being this way or that way. My happiness is one which embraces my sadness. 
Finally, my love is one which embraces my own hate. And that quality of happiness from just being in relationship to the universe as it is, not because it's this way or because it's that way, is this deeper quality of happiness that is what this Buddhist prayer is asking for. So I think what you were doing was playing with the polarity of happiness and sadness. Now you understand finally that the way you look at your sadness is not as something to push away, but something to, yes, there is sadness in life. And my sadness came out of my truth also. See, I mean, when you've come up for air out of a lot of sadness, you want to cling to your happiness. But as long as you're clinging to anything and pushing anything away, you're vulnerable. It's got you. You're always frightened because you're always waiting for the slip and you'll be cast back into sadness. And finally, you have to embrace it into yourself, all of it. So I'd say now that you have learned to be happy, you can turn around and look back at your sadness and start to allow that that's a part of you too until you've embraced all of it into yourself. Is that question? Next? Any more? Any? No? Yes? No? <laughs> she wasn't sure whether she'd let go or not. Is that on? Yes. Well, I'd let go of it almost entirely. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> And you have almost entirely. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Which go ahead. And uh, I feel it has been answered in part, but anyway, um, if I understand that to hold models and expectations and attachments in a close, intimate relationship is a violation of somebody else's spirit, then can you perhaps give me? A few clues as to how to find the bit of blue sky sometimes when it uh, seems a bit difficult to get there. One must cultivate an appreciation of the perspective or frame of reference or a little bit of blue sky if one can, when one is away from the intense dramas of life. And then, when you do that, you can, little by little, deal with the ways in which your mind gets entrapped in models, in expectations, in judgments, and so on, by working with little ones first. You can't expect that when you've got a relationship in which you're locked in to a heavy-duty one, you're going to get much blue sky for a long time because it is so deeply entrenched in so much history and so much hurt and so much all kinds of stuff in it and so much fear and on. So that generally what I have noticed is that over the years as I have continued my spiritual practices of consciousness and opening the heart and so on, often in very safe settings like this one, that the transfer of that to these other situations has gotten stronger so that I could handle 
the arising of these conditions earlier and earlier on, what usually happens is you see somebody and you felt wonderful, and then you see somebody with whom you're locked into one of these things, like jealousy or anger or expectations or something. And the old habit rises up, and it sort of takes you over. It kind of, you just put it on like a rubber suit, and it just covers you, and then you're in it. And then once you're in it, it is really hard to see it, because it, it, it colors everything. It's like the chakras we were talking about that take over reality. Then later, you can only see it much later when you've come out of it again, when you come much, much later. As your practices get deeper and you're, you're aware of the perspective more, that spacious awareness, as you're going into situations, you begin to see the suit as you're starting to put it on. See, at first you don't even see it when it puts on because you just get it on and then you only see it later when you've taken it off. Then after a while, you realize when you're in it, because it's so heavy and thick, and you realize, what am I doing in this thickness again? And the thickness is all your mind. It's nothing but your mind. It's not the universe. The universe is just being what the universe is. It's the mind interpreting the universe in a way that gets you stuck. When you recognize that, But you can't get out of it because it's got so many webs of, inter of everything into all of you. It's like taking a tree out that has a roots that intertwine with everything else. You go back and you deepen your practice and you deepen your practice. And after a while, you start to savor the quality of lightness so much that as you come to one of these situations, you feel the thickening happening. You feel yourself starting to get caught. And at that moment, you don't start to hold up the cross to keep from the possession. <laughs> you know, what you do is there is a, a shift in balance where you know that if you go back into that, it's all familiar and you'll be that, but it's kind of You know, it's like my guru saying, give up anger, you know, and the anger is so familiar and so righteous and so, but who needs it? And there is a point where I get to where as the anger starts to arise, I just, there's a sense of me, I, I don't think I want to go there anymore. And you go back into your practices, not using your practices to ward it off. But just because the balance has shifted and you're just kind of tired of it all. Not tired in a new melodrama, just enough, enough. And that's timing again. We come back to timing. So I can only say you develop your practices. You don't, because when you're in them, you can't get rid of them. You can't get rid of them because everything you do from in them is going to feed them. So you develop your practices at the moments when you're not so stuck in them. And then you address them as you can. Right? You know, you don't get enlightened yesterday. It's a slow process. <laughs> but it's a process where you just begin to... I mean, the fact that you're even asking that question 
is already recognizing the entrapment of the mind. That's already the whole thing. See, from a bizarre point of view, the whole thing's already happened. You see, the, the, to even ask the question means you're already on the way out. Even though it may take you to do it. I mean, days, weeks, months, years, lifetimes. And after a while, what you cultivate in this whole trip is patience. Because you realize that the getting there is half the fun. I mean, it was. this is bizarre. I, this is too bizarre to even talk about. But, but <laughs> there's a moment where you are so eager to get enlightened and get done. And then there is the recognition that it's going to happen. And then you don't push, you're not afraid of it, but like Hanuman refusing to be lifted up by Ram, you begin to savor the process. It's like, it's like getting into a bath. I, I use bath images because I love baths. And getting into a bath that's very hot and it's painfully hot. And you know you're going to adapt to it, and in a minute it won't be that hot anymore. And you're sort of savoring the pain of it and the, that process of adjusting to it. And it's the same way. After a while, you're just not pushing against enlightenment, but saying, okay, in its proper time, in its proper time, and starting to appreciate the process. So just look at where you're standing in relation to the issue you raise. And see that who you have asked the question already knows there's an out. You already know you're in prison. The process is going because you're already looking for ways to escape. Now you can just be a witness to the whole process. Inevitably, you will escape. Now just enjoy the process of the, oh, I'm caught again. Oh, it hurts so bad. I am so jealous. I am so... I so wish he were like this so I could be happy. <laughs> Something like that, you know. I mean, I'm just making it up. But <laughs> Okay, everybody. That was lunch. No questions. Surge. <laughs> Although it would be charming, I am absolutely sure. I, I... I'm tempted to let him do it because we he's so charming. I <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.